it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 510 for November 18th, 2017. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Dr. Marianne Gary, professor from the University of Waikato in New Zealand. Dr. Gary is a scientific researcher into memory, memory distortions, false memories, the myth of repression, and its overlap with the law. This is her third, I think, appearance on Chit Chat Across the Pond. And uh, in previous episodes, she has pretty much ruined everything we think we know about memory. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Thank you, Allison. And just to prove that I'm going to ruin everything you know, this is my fourth appearance. Oh, is it really four? Okay. Well, uh, you know, I forgot. I think. I forgot. Well, I could just be making it up. That's true. Well, uh, as usual, we've come in with a whole bunch of questions that uh, we want to get answered today. And uh, I'm going to start out with one of mine. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, well, actually, for, you're at a new university, right? Can yes. you tell us anything about that? Uh, I'm now at the University of Waikato. I was at Victoria University of Wellington in Wellington, uh, also in New Zealand for about 20 years. Uh, and a guy I have an awful lot of respect for became what we would call in the U.S. the president of that university and uh, recruited me and my partner to help him, um, you know. Advance the school, Advance right? the university, yeah. So cool. it's, uh, it's a challenge and it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. But still in the same field, though. Still in the same field. We're still doing the same thing. We're just in a little warmer climate and <laughs> fewer earthquakes, so. There you yeah. go, flatter ground. It's nice when the ground's not trying to eat you, I've discovered. <laughs> I would think so. Well, the first question I wanted to start out with was, actually, I should back up a little bit. Uh, Marianne spoke uh, this weekend, or this week, at Claremont Graduate University. So we got a chance to meet a bunch of grad students, uh, and we got to hear other professors talking and uh, at a dinner. And we were able to uh, see Marianne speak, which was super cool. Steve is working on uh, the video of that. And Probably should have it up and uh, we should be able to get a link to it in the show notes here before we go go live. But I noticed I, it started making me think, how do how do people who are doing graduate studies and, and the work that you do, how do you decide uh, what kind of projects to work on? I mean, do you look for a specific problem to be solved or do you just say, hey, this would be interesting. I think I'll go study that. How does that work? Oh, well, definitely the rookie move is to do the second one, which is to say, <laughs> I think I'll do this without having a question in mind okay. or a problem. So the problem can either be a theoretical problem, uh, which is there's a theoretical tension in the literature. So we don't know a particular human behavior. Does it happen because of A or does it happen because of B? And if you can devise some program of research, a series of experiments, let's say, to come down on, well, no, definitely. In fact, A would predict this kind of pattern of results when we don't see that, and B would predict this kind of pattern of results when we see that. You know, so that's a problem that you're now closer to solving. Uh, but there's also, you could have a problem to be solved that is a more a problem of application or translation from theory into practice. So, uh, so taking going out of the laboratory and into real life, for example. So I have colleagues who study, at Waikato, I have colleagues who study... Uh, the behavior of drivers, and they do that in driving simulators. Very, oh, really? Way, way cool. Yeah, and so they're taking research that is solid, uh, theoretically grounded, interesting, basic research on attention and perception, and they're studying how that those issues 
transfer into situations of like and driving. So what do you notice? When do you notice it when you're driving? Uh, and you can make predictions based on what we know from controlled, more experimental you know, laboratory studies and, and say, well, what might translate into real-world driving behavior and, and how? How might it translate? And there's definitely quite a few problems to be solved there. <laughs> there are. Well, I think like we talked about some part. of those last time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like what are the problems with heads-up displays and what are the problems? I think we talked last time yeah, about that. Yeah, we did. And we yeah. talked about how um, just because you're looking doesn't mean that's where you're paying attention. Yeah. Right. So that's right. a problem. Uh, and then there's other problems like it's a huge uh, bunch of information coming at you from all kinds of directions and things you need to keep in mind when you're driving. So how are you like what what's distracting, like what kinds of road markers would help you and what kinds of road markers are just confusing, for instance. So it's really it's an interesting dilemma. Like I I noticed that. uh when I come back to the U.S., you really get a sense of the fact that the road markings are all different across different states. And if you're driving around a lot of states, it'll drive you nuts. If, oh, so right, just, right. What am I supposed to do when I see this thing? And it can be really, you know, so that's just one tiny piece. So road markings, traffic signal signs, they can help you or they can confuse you. Right. So I, I guess one of the things I, I've noticed and, and realized the more I've gotten to know you and talk to you about the work that you do is I think I had this vision of a psychologist working at a university would be going, well, I know what would be interesting. Let's look at this. Let's study this. And, and not not necessarily starting with something with a problem to be solved. And I never realized until I got to know you that the type of work you do, you talk a lot about statistics, statistical analysis and uh, eliminating variables and having controlled experiments, very scientific methods. And that's really critical to the kind of work you do, that you don't come out, it's not people sitting around philosophizing, you know what I think, which is what those of us who don't do any real work in this field would probably do, uh, given the question, you know, I think because I react this way to A, therefore this is the answer to the question. But you have to have a statistical sampling size and have, have variability that you measure, Correct. Yeah, well, I mean, all sciences operate in a certain way. So <clears throat> the whole point of science is to move you away from your, well, it's to move you away from your maybe intuitive sense of how things should work or your feelings about what feels like it should be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so all sciences operate with a, a research question, a set of predictions, hypotheses, and then a scientific method. So not every scientist does experimentation. So, for instance, you can find people, even like in, in psychology, for instance, you can find scientists like um, who study, if you're wanting to study people who are like Devin does, people who are psychopaths. So that's a, there's a lot of scientific inquiry there, but you can't randomly assign people to be, well, I'm going to train you to be a psychopath. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's a problem. You can find people who do epidemiology research. They want to know about health-related behavior. So you can't, not even ethically, you just can't even, you know, pragmatically, practically do that kind of thing as an experiment. You know, you have to Make look at... Make someone unhealthy. Yeah, what's the relationship, right, what's the relationship between where you live, uh, how close supermarkets are to you, and how heavy you are, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how we get the idea of food deserts, for instance. Um, so, but I do... 
almost always I do experimental work. Almost always. Do you, is there a, a concept of falsifiable theories? Like in order to prove a theory, does it have to be falsifiable as well? Yeah, well, that's what Karl Popper said, and I think that's right. So a theory isn't even really a theory worth talking about if it's if it's if if you can't falsify it. If you can't falsify it, then it's just a description. I think mm. this is true, and I say, all right, how would we know if it's not true? And if you if your answer is, yeah, I guess we wouldn't know, then, <laughs> you know, that's not really a good theory. Then that's just something to talk about over dinner. Yeah, yeah. so a good theory <laughs> makes predictions, and a good theory has to be falsifiable. So actually the the interesting thing about science and theory is that you can search for evidence that supports a theory that fits with the prediction of a theory, but I I think only in some very unusual circumstances cuz you then conclude the theory is right because really what you're supposed to be doing is searching for evidence that disconfirms the theory. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um and if it keeps turning out to be more with like a pattern of data that's lined up with the theory. You see what I'm not saying confirming, right? So then you just say, okay, well, that's more evidence that fits with this theory. I like that. I like that. Do you, have you had experiences where you're searching for something and you find something completely different and you get that, well, that's interesting moment. Yeah. Those are the fun parts because if you, all you do is just keep, I don't know, confirming what you already suspect or reifying just the common wisdom, then that gets kind of boring. <laughs> right, uh, right. What you really want to do is is find something where you think, like you said, oh, that's an interesting pattern. When I when I do A, I get, you know, B, but when I do when I kind of turn the dial this way, I get the opposite and I wasn't expecting that. So now let me do it again. Oh, Replicate, right, right. Right? Because it could be that I just you know, immediately if that happened, I would say, that's interesting. And I would be, about a second later, I would think, I probably made a mistake. And I would start <laughs> looking to see if I did some backwards programming or something in my statistics was backwards or whatever. Um, well, blame a grad negative, student, negative you know. <laughs> right. That's your that's fault. That's what they're there for. Yeah. yeah, that's what they're there for. And and then I would do it again. And, and with a bigger sample size, try and get more what we might call precision around the data. And then think, well, that's really weird. I mean, I've had that happen before. And then sometimes it has been a, a code. And so now, in fact, sometimes in a lab meeting, if I've had instances where a student has presented data and I say, I think those are completely coded backwards. Oh. Right, yeah. Um, and it's, it's happened that I've been correct, but it's also happened that I've been incorrect. And I think, oh, that's interesting. So we do it again. Right. And the, and the job of in peer review is for someone else to say, I don't believe that. Because we should expect the pattern to look like this. And you've got a pattern that looks like that. And so, hmm, you know, so let's to, see To question more. it, right? Yeah, to question it. It right. could still be right, but that's, you right. want a critical eye to look at yeah, it. Yeah, because it has implications. Like if you get a pattern that doesn't fit with what you would expect based on some theory, and it keeps repeating, keeps repeating, and then it repeats out, outside in other labs, then, well, now that means we've got a, the theory now has to accommodate. Right, right. That's five. a live one. That's that's exciting. It's really exciting. Right. Yeah, it's real exciting. So I've heard you use the word replication a few times over the last week. Do you also replicate if the results match what you did expect? Or do you only replicate if they don't match? Uh, either. There's a 
The really interesting thing about we you mentioned samples before is that the idea in in human behavior, well, in, in in behavior. Well, let me back up. If I sample some water molecules and they behave a certain way, then I can tell you with pretty good confidence that all the water molecules are going to do this because water molecules don't have little personalities. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, okay. Now, when we transfer statistics which are techniques that were created not to study human behavior, but basically to study, you know, molecules and... Behavior of something. <laughs> plant genes and stuff. So, yeah, the behavior of things that don't think. Mm -hmm. What one of my professors used to call purposeless particles. <laughs> uh, and you transfer them to purposeful, obstinate, personality-driven <laughs> particles, like people or animals. Then, Then now we have some interesting things going on um and so if, if people who are interested in statistics i can't believe that anybody is but outside <laughs> of my field but people who are interested in in what i'm going to say can google uh on youtube you can look on look for a video called the dance of the p values by jeff cumming it's a really fascinating thing so everyone i think probably if they're interested in science or technology has heard something about p values and it's not doesn't really matter too much, but basically they they low p values are the statistical outcome that give us should give us some confidence that the effect we're seeing is not just a fluke. And the problem is, if you're going to do an experiment, it takes an awful lot of time. You know, it could take weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months and months. And now at the end of it, I've done one experiment: time, mm -hmm. effort, money. And so I might write that up and, and I look, oh, low p-value, like I was saying, probably not a fluke. So I think, oh, I've got this finding. Well, so now I should go replicate that just in case, not even because I, th I think, oh, it's, a, it's an unusual, unpredictable pattern, but because nobody will look believe on the, you. <laughs> well, if you look on this dance of the p-values video, what you see is that you've got one sample of a population. And so your sample might have some unusual characteristics in it and you have no idea uh it could be there's all kinds of these everyone you picked in that sample would happen to be a comedian yeah i mean that <laughs> i mean that could happen right there's all kinds of things that contribute to noise and the techniques can do something to uh isolate and account for noise but only up to a certain degree and so you get this finding and you don't know if you see the video, you don't know where you are on the dance of the p-values. And I'll leave it at that. So you won't understand what I just said unless you look at this video. But it's fine. So you don't know. Basically, you don't know if it's a fluke. If you've got one sample, you don't know if it's a fluke. And there's there are approaches that people take in experimentation that make it more likely that you've got a fluke. Low sample sizes. Uh, not good experimental control. You know. Um, and... So replication is about, well, let's do that again. Let's do that again. And how else can we gain better control? How else can we minimize the bias, minimize the noise? How can we gain more precision over what we're doing? Do it again. And so you would want to be able to do that a number of times so that you have confidence, not just, well, that, that, the, that this effect that you think you see is... A legitimate effect. Now, I should say, 
that you can have something that's a legitimate effect and it doesn't happen every time. So every so you oh, know when someone yeah. says my uncle smoked for 30 years and lived to 150. <laughs> okay, that doesn't mean smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. Right. That's a legitimate effect and it's a pretty strong effect, right? But it doesn't mean it happens all the time to everybody, you know, for instance. So uh you can replicate and you should expect sometimes, you know, you just don't Things don't go your way, for lack of a better expression. Now, I've also heard you talk about trying to replicate other people's experiments. When yeah. something is truly interesting, pe- other scientists will try to replicate. Right. And it, at times, I think we already talked about that in a previous episode, but that, that replication isn't just in and of yourself. You replicate other people's experiments. Yeah. So who, who funds this kind of research? I mean, where does, where does the money come from to do this? Uh, let me let me just say before I answer that question. There's interesting. Somebody, you know, some of your listeners might find interesting looking up some work about why why most medical research doesn't replicate, or just Google just Google replication in science, and you'll see that there is a real problem with research that's driven by interests that are other than curiosity and other than <laughs> you know just the satisfaction of being. You know, just the joy of science, right? I mean, I, I can say that. Well, I'm, like I'm really excited. Tobacco, for example, might yeah, have right. I mean, I'm real. I, I love being a scientist, and I'm driven by a lot of, you know, by curiosity. But every scientist, including me, has some ego in it eventually, right? And mm-hmm. so, replication gets hard because when someone, let's say, I mean, if you're, I mean, I'm known for a few kind of effects, and if someone were to say, uh, that's not an actual thing. And then show some data. I would be just be crushed, and probably as well, much as I would, first you tried to disprove their whatever they well, did. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I would like to think that I'd be like, well, that is very interesting. <laughs> Thank you for telling me <laughs> that this thing that I'm known for is just not a thing. My life's so, work. My right? life's work. Thank you. Um, but you know, I wouldn't. I'd be. I'd be sad. Um, and so scientists are people too. And but then there's other. Uh, more pernicious sorts of difficult conflicts that people find themselves in. So some people, you can see, I mean, if you've got this precursor that you think is a cure for cancer, then you've got skin in the game in oh, a number yeah. of ways. You got yeah. ego, you got finance, you got whatever it is. and and Plus really wanting that goal. And really wanting that goal. And, and it can blind you to things that you you know, should otherwise be able to see. And sometimes what you find, actually, I think, you know, I'm not talking about, for the most part, fraud. Mm-hmm. There is outright fraud. Every, right. Everything. Everything. Sure. Right? Because people are people. <laughs> but I think most of what happens is that, you know, it's the problems of conflicts of interest. So you get people who, like I say, have skin in the game. That's a nice way of saying conflicts. And so we, we get blinded to what we don't want to see. And then there's a huge amount of pressure to deliver on funding. So that segues us into funding. So there's a huge amount of pressure to deliver on funding for um, universities to for you to promote your work at, at the university where you where you are, um, for the taxpayers to get value for money. Uh, right. It's the right. way that you get promoted. You can't you don't advance if you don't make interesting discoveries that have an impact on your discipline in internationally. Uh, and so there's lots of contingencies at play. And so you can see why a lot of the 
the high stakes literature, like medical literature, for instance, can be a mess. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. So um, to the funding question, where, do, where does the money come from? Who pays to find out whether or not, you know, A is versus B happens when, when you turn the dial? I mean, where, where, does, where does the money come from? Well, it depends. So in the United States, for example, there's a number of, um, well, the government supports some of the research. And the government can support different kinds of research. So through the National Institutes of Health, National Institutes of Mental Health, a network of, uh, well, like the name says. <laughs> okay, and they right. have funding rounds. There's the National Science Foundation, so that's taxpayer dollars as well. There are um, philanthropic organizations or people make bequests, like the Kellogg Foundation, for instance. Really? So, yeah, yeah. Um, and Do they define this as something we'd like to know about, or do they just go? Often. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they all have different parameters. So you don't go to the National Science Foundation and say, I'd like to, I don't know, write a poem or whatever, <laughs> right? Not work for a year. Because that's not their brief. Okay. But um, there are foundations, for instance, in the U.S. that are devoted to questions of importance to education. Right? And so okay. they don't necessarily specify what they want you to propose because they want you to propose because they don't know okay Okay. yeah so what are you what are you working on that we we should know about and that's that's the whole point right so when you have a funding agency or a philanthropic body saying we want people to do x then if you constrain it too much you're going to lose a lot of opportunities because it's the people doing the research who are, are best positioned to be able to say oh i've got some ideas and some maybe preliminary data even that okay that so fits they, with that idea. they won't say do this experiment but they would say we want to understand the effects of a on b well you know sometimes some agencies will will do that like you know or so like where i live there's not really it, it's not really big enough in new zealand to have something that's the equivalent of the national science foundation national institutes of mental health and all these uh, we have the royal society of new zealand and it administers what's called the marston fund which is also taxpayers' dollars. So it administers that program on the funding on behalf of basically the people of New Zealand. Um, and but there are the government also, like any government anywhere, will also do tenders for contracts. And there they'll say, "We want this specific question answered." Oh, okay, you okay. Yeah. Sometimes they will specify, and uh, I'll tell you, I think it's over-specifying. They'll say, <laughs> "We want someone to do a focus group to answer this question." And that might not make any sense because a focus group where people sit around and have lunch and talk about, I don't know, whatever, because you can see I don't do that kind of research, uh, <laughs> can tell you some things and doesn't tell you a lot of other things. And so there's the contract now. The, the tender for the contract is specifying a method that might be a really terrible way of addressing the issue at large. Okay. Right. Now, you told me uh, yesterday when we were chatting about this question that there are uh, – some institutes that that provide funding that just want you to think big what was it what was the organization you were blue skies curiosity driven research so that's a typical kind of the most the nicest kinds of grants if you're a scientist are those so what are you curious about and wow what's yeah and a lot of people go oh god what a waste of money right but it's it's no, it is this blue skies, curiosity driven research that got people to the moon, 
mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, because it's there. Why do we send? Why did we build the Mars rover? Because it's there. Why the Large Hadron Collider? Why not? Let's see what the world is made of. You know, right. like why not? We don't know what we're going to get out of it. You don't know the end condition that you're going to get out of it. You yeah, don't know I mean, so you'll learn. land on the moon, but what else happens as a result of all the infrastructure that gets devoted to supporting the endeavor to to have a moon landing mm-hmm. or to have the Mars rover or to whatever? I don't think Endeavor landed on the moon, but I didn't say Endeavor. No, and endeavor. Oh, not and the endeavor. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. yeah, right. So all the infrastructure that's one, in yeah. supporting that kind of thing has untold and in many ways unknowable benefits. So somebody might say, oh, I bet this could happen as an offshoot. But, you know, that's 20, 30 years down the track. So I remember there was a guy at my old university who stood up once and he, he was not really a fan of the scientific method, um, even though he trained as an engineer and eventually retrained as a psychologist. And he stood up at a lecture series once and said, a hundred years of the scientific method never got us anywhere. And this other guy in the department (laughs) said, without missing a beat, except that microwave you just cooked your lunch in, (laughs) which is right. So this is what I mean. So there's untold benefits to people as a result of what looks on the face of it like. Why should I fund this research? And the but answer is we wouldn't is have be- space pens without without uh, you yeah. Know, we the wouldn't Apollo have Velcro. Mission, right? We wouldn't have tiny things. You know, <laughs> wouldn't have an iPhone, and that would be really sad. Right, right, right. You wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> None of that stuff would be there. Well, another question I, I had from uh, listening to the professor speaking uh, that that we had dinner with out in Claremont was they referred very specifically to cognitive psychology, and it seems to me cognitive means like thinking. So what other kind of psychology is there? I mean, what cognitive, it seems redundant to me. Cognitive psychology is the dominant paradigm in psychology. Thanks to a man named Ulrich Neisser, who published a book, um, late, I think 1969, called Cognitive Psychology, because the dominant paradigm before that was behaviorism. And behaviorism would say, you know, the idea in behaviorism, everyone's heard of Skinner, there's a common misconception that he said, people don't have thoughts. And he, that's not what he said. He said, of course you have thoughts. You know, they're kind of maybe a a way of talking about your behavior and what you're likely to do. It's just that I don't need them to understand your behavior. That's what the whole view of behaviorism was. So if you say, I might go for a walk or I think I'll go for a walk as you're walking out the door then I don't need to know what you just said to know that you're going to go for a walk, right? You're just going for a walk. So the idea there is that you're just going to measure, observe people's behavior. But what Neisser said was, actually thoughts are a kind of behavior and they matter and you can predict what people are going to do and think and decide on the basis of thoughts and you can change thoughts and all of that. So cognitive psychology is really about thinking, problem solving, decision making, all of all those things and how they relate to behavior. So I'm a cognitive psychologist and most people operate in that tradition these days. So uh, study of psychopathy, is that part of cognitive psychology? Well, it's it's part of yeah, see, when you get into what atypical, what is atypical behavior, now we're into clinical abnormal psychology, but oh. it's still... So but clinical it's still and abnormal gra- are not part of cognitive? Well, no, they should be. They should be um, because they should be because they should still be grounded in how people think and process information, for example. But they're maybe they're more like offshoots because it's 
cognitive psychology as a yeah, it's general not mainstream. Term like I'm a mainstream. mainstream cognitive psychologist. I look at I don't look at what weird people do. I look at what normal, normal people, people do. Right. So Just, you can't put engineers in the list. No. Or, no. Oh God. No. No. Uh, <laughs> whereas you know, like Devin looks at this tiny little slice of behavior out here. You know, right. people causing problems. Yeah. For we, themselves and others. Yeah. That's a scary topic. Um, so let's see. I also heard terms like autobiographical memory versus semantic memory. And th- th- there there was an episode of Star Trek I always like to quote where uh, Picard gets beamed down to a planet and this other other captain is down there and tries to kill him. And the two of them are in this mortal battle. But finally, this this monster comes out who uh, tries to kill them. And so the two of them have to band together to fight this monster. And in as they begin to converse, it it, it occurs that uh, they realize that uh, or Picard realizes that the other captain doesn't speak normally. He speaks in English words, but they don't mean anything when they're strung together. So he keeps saying things like, Timbo, when the walls fell, his arms open wide. Oh, word salad. Yeah. Well, so when I hear autobiographical memory versus semantic memory, I'm like, okay, those are both all, those are all words, but what the heck are you people talking about? <laughs> Long-winded question. Um, well, people who do memory research chop up memory into different kinds of memory. It Just to make things easier. So... To have a language, to have a way to, have to describe a, yeah, it. Yeah, to have a way of describing what we talk about. So semantic memory is memory for facts. Um, what's the freezing point of water, for instance? How many times have you been on the show? That would be semantic memory. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. If I, to answer that question, how many times have I been on the show? I think of my experiences being on the show and so I'm now giving you a fact, but I'm recounting my personal experiences while doing that, which it is autobiographical memory. So autobiographical, Because it's about self? Right. Autobiographical memories are memories for our personal experiences. Yeah. So it's <laughs> things can be both. Now, I suppose if I just I don't I don't know where I learned the freezing point of water. Um, OK. So we could say that's a fact. That's a, like a semantic fact. Okay. Uh, but, but there are points about that, yourself. Your birthday. You didn't experience your birthday in a way that we can recall. Right. So that would be purely semantic. Well, it's vocabulary, right? It's not like purely because it lives in this box and it's not allowed to go in the other box. There's no actual <laughs> box. It's just a vocabulary. So okay. um, someone might uh, say that's an autobiographical fact. So it gets a little... And there's other things that people might talk about is motor memory, which is memory for how to do a particular skill, a motor skill. Okay. Uh, there is procedural memory. Okay. So these are just things. kind of general adjectives that sort of sort things, just, but not It's just jargon. Yeah. They're boxes. just sorting, but they're not, they're just things we make up to have, make it easier to discuss. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, another question why do we have some kinds of things that we're really good at remembering and there's other kinds of things we're not good at remembering? And the example uh, I was going to give is is I know people who seem to be really good at remembering names or remembering uh, dates. I can't remember, definitely can't remember dates. Don't know when anything happened, anything, unless it's directly related to like the year I graduated from high school or the year one of my children was born. Then I can get you at least in the right year. 
Um, but I have an incredible memory for vocabulary. I'm really good at remembering words. I've got a good vocabulary because I read and the words just stick to me. What is it that makes us able to remember some things better than others? Well, I mean, in general terms, you use your words a lot and they're... <laughs> I use a lot Steve of words. Steve might say too much. <laughs> but you use words, right? So we use words and we, they, they're important to us. And, and we need to have... We need to be able to use certain words to mean certain things to be understood. And therefore, we practice doing that a lot and we put effort into it. And it's a skill. Whereas uh, some things are really an abstraction, like, and don't really have a long-term importance necessarily, or at least one we know at the time. So most people have problems learning somebody's name. And that trick that you have where you're told to repeat someone's name and visualize something bizarre mm-hmm. that their name sounds right. like uh, works because it's taking something abstract and making it concrete. And in fact, if you make it bizarre, that's you know even better. So, because um, names are hard, and dates are even harder because you don't necessarily know what date it is i have no idea what date it is today right not a flipping clue and i i know it's towards the weekend right now i think right. it's thanksgiving's Saturday. coming up but yeah well the date. yeah but i don't even notice that anymore right because i don't <laughs> live in the u.s so so um so just vaguely i mean i'm okay because i know it's november <laughs> you're pretty good you got right? the month i know down. i know that i have something to do on the 28th and it and it's in new zealand so it's not then yet, <laughs> right? So, uh, and I know that my conference, which was like the seventh and the eighth and the ninth, is over. So I, so I'm in a bookended period of dates. But other than that, I have no idea. And so people find it often difficult to just remember dates because they're complete abstractions. They're just things we make up so that we all show up at the eating the turkey together, right, <laughs> at the same time. So. Same with time. So if you don't really check or have anything to relate it to, it's 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 just hard. Uh, now there is some research, really interesting research. As Chuck Thompson and other people, I think at um, Boulder uh, uh, did some really nice research showing that if you ask people to remember certain kinds of experiences and then to tell you when those experiences happened, and then you plot along the x-axis the error. In their date, mm. plus or minus seven, plus or minus 14, plus or minus 21. You see the pattern? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you plot as a percentage. What you'll see is that you get people who are pretty accurate about the date. Right. So it's, that's pretty high. That's pretty good peak. But you find, I'm not certainly not going to say it's, you know, even most people, as I recall, but the errors themselves have an interesting pattern. So the errors are not randomly, uniformly distributed. Oh, really? So the errors, no, they occur in plus or minus. So it's it's the date on either side. So if you say, like, let's say something happened on Tuesday the, the 20th, then you will make an error maybe on a Tuesday on either side. Oh, okay. Plus or minus seven days. Oh. Or... Um, if something happened on a Tuesday, you might make an error that's Monday or Wednesday. So it depends probably on your schedule and how it is that you, the cues you use or the structure that guides you when you're trying to recall that 
memory. So the dates themselves are fairly predictable. So day of the week, plus or minus one, and then week. So the error is, so it's, it would be unusual to have an error that would like, you know what I mean? So it goes in these little peaks. Okay. Out. Little side lobes. Yeah. Little side lobes. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool. And so that gives you some insight into the fact that people might use the structure, schedule, recurring Like events. picturing a calendar. Yeah. That it was in this column where the Tuesday is kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Well, this is what I often do on a Tuesday and, or... Or if maybe you don't have a schedule, then you would go either side. Well, that was just, and you think it was, you think Tuesday was what you did Monday or something. And so you're just off. So they kind of blob together. So dates aren't random. That that does make sense to me because watching uh, my ability to know the day and date since I've retired is, is really astonishing. Um, constantly I'll be calling one of the kids, you know, on a, on a Tuesday at three in the afternoon and they're like, I'm at work right now. We can't talk to you right now. What are you doing? Right. And like, really? It's not Saturday? Oh, huh. I thought the show was tomorrow. You know, I'm, I'm off by like four or five days, some weird yeah. number. Right. Um, but I guess, I guess what I was really kind of drilling at was it bothers me that there are people in our lives who are very, very good at this, at remembering things. Just last week, Tom Merritt sent me an email saying, I just wanted to thank you again for recommending Time Scroller to me all those years ago. I use it all the time. And for the life of me, I do not remember ever having told him. And if I did tell him about it, it had to be four or five years ago. But he remembers who told him specific things. Now, oddly enough, I remembered that the guy's name is Terry who wrote it. And I wrote to the guy and told him about Tom, but why I remember that one name. And yet I I absolutely, I I was at a party yesterday with a bunch of people that used to work for me and I knew them really, really well. And there's this one guy, his name is Alan. And I only know that because somebody else called out his name. His name is just invisible to me. I can never remember it. Well, let's hope Alan's not listening. Yeah, really. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Alan. I've I've told him. I mean, I'd see him two or three times a week. Couldn't remember his name. But, But other people are really, really good at it. Other people are really good at dates. Other people remember what grade they were in when a specific thing was learned. You know, I, we learned about, uh, you know, the alphabet or the, the, the states yeah, in alphabetical but those order. Those are autobiographical memories. Grade. Everything you told me about Tom, that's an autobiographical memory. Everything you took, learning where, where you were when you learned it, that's an autobiographical memory. And so it's probably some combination that's hard to predict for an individual person, but easier to explain after the fact that yeah. um, it would be a combination of learning a thing that you thought was interesting enough uh and then in like in Tom's case, maybe he, you know, he uses it a lot. And, and every time he uses it, he thinks of you, you know, Allison, I would do that. I, by the way, you told me about time scroller and every time I use it, I think of you. So <laughs> by um, the way, but the that guy- doesn't mean I'm good at memory for apps or okay. memory for people's names or anything. It just, it's just tied up in a particular experience. And I remember you showing it to me in the kitchen downstairs. Wow. So Good news. I wrote to Terry and he's rewriting it in, in Swift for iOS. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. His stupid kid got out of college and got a job and stuff. So that's <sighs> why he hasn't been working <sighs> out for us all this time. So I think that, um, yeah. So, and also let's not fall into this trap of thinking that because somebody can demonstrate that they are correct about something that we then take that thing and generalize it to Bob's good at memories for oh, okay. dates and time. So, okay, because they knew one type. Yeah, and, and you know, a couple things could be going on. So sometimes those people are not correct. 
right? And sometimes they are correct, but also then it's the problem of taking, again, it's like a replication, taking a small sample and then generalizing to the universe. Yeah, that's a good Doesn't point. mean yeah. I'm going to be good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's what I do for a living. So, um, <laughs> I'm but, shocked you're good at it. Though. But, you know, the, I know, I am too. So the other thing is um, there are people, and listeners can Google uh, the abbreviation HSEM, it's highly... I guess it's AM. It's people with highly superior autobiographical memory. So these are mm. people who, like Mary Lou Henner. Oh, I've heard about right? this. Yeah. There's a 60 Minutes episode with these folks, and yeah. there's some research that people at... Um, they uh, can remember anything that happened to them. At, yeah, like, Jim what? McGaw, Larry Cahill, Beth Loftus, Lawrence Batia, so at UCI, doing really interesting. So they they can tell you, they it's almost... It's funny because it's almost like, and in some ways has been used as an analogy, an obsessive compulsive disorder of, of memory. Hmm. Uh, so imagine things that are memories stacked in clusters and like a, like a hoarder would, you know, organized, right? But just why, why? Yeah, we, so I, I, I cut you off before you said what these people can remember. Oh, just well, they can remember like, so, you know, you just say... Um, where were you? I have no idea. They've asked things like, oh, what color shoes were you wearing on Tuesday, October 14th, 1972? And she'll say, oh, these pink leather pumps. Yeah, so that's yeah. unfalsifiable unless you've got a photo. But what you can do is say, tell me what the weather was like that day. Tell me what was in the news. And you can go to the library and get the weather report and okay. get the news and whatever it is. And, you know, they're they're pretty accurate. But what's fascinating is that these people don't necessarily make better like eyewitnesses. They're not more resistant to memory distortions. Oh, right, they're wow. just they're prone to suggestion, like is I think anybody? you and I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their so their memory is very highly developed in in one way. Just like someone who's a hoarder doesn't have all the disorders, you know. <laughs> so maybe it is a form of disorder, just a really unusual and interesting one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could. I mean, I don't know it well enough to know, but there's a you. If you Google it, you'll you can do some reading, and you can, like I said, see the. I think it was a sixty minutes video. And there's one of the women yeah. um, who has this, well, it's interesting. I mean, ability is the most neutral word I can think of it because there's right. a blessing and a curse in, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, they did talk about remembering, unfortunately, also remember traumatic events just as vividly. Yeah, you just remember too much in some ways. Yeah. You know? So either a lot or too much, depending on what the thing is and whether you want it. Um, Jill, I think her last name begins with a B, so you can see how good my memory is and... and uh, Yes, yeah, she's written a book on what it's like to to be like this. So I guess one of the things I'm pleased by is your answer that in general, we are not good at dates and names and that that's natural because like you say, it's an abstraction. The fact that your name is Marianne doesn't tell me anything about what you look like or, you know, there's there's nothing to trigger off. It is simply a, a label that's floating in space that is that I have to make the connection to who you are. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's effortful. So you now to need to take some steps. To take my name, which is quite abstract, and attach it to this concrete thing about me, which is why I said, you know, like, turn it into that's that advice you always read. Right. How to remember people's names better is totally, it's totally right. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean you can't remember somebody's name. And of course, the more that you think about it and use it, the more meaningful it is, the more likely you are to remember, duh. And, and you know, your name is an abstraction, but you don't ever introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm, I have no idea what my name is at the beginning of your podcast, right? So, so it's because... That's because I have it written down. 
Yeah, it's, that's it, right. It is actually in the text that I read every time. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd probably screw that You probably up. would. You probably I've would. actually said the wrong uh, date for my own birthday. I had somebody ask me once when I was born, and I said a, a date just completely nowhere near when I was born. And then said, no, it wasn't. So then I looked like a little psycho there just arguing yeah, you do. myself. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it doesn't happen that you often. You didn't do that at like passport control, did you? No, that... no. It was just, it was in college. It was okay. the strangest thing. Uh, somebody asked me where I was born once and I said Philadelphia. And I've never been to Philadelphia. I was born in Detroit. I don't know where that one came from either. Oh, I think you need to talk to Gibbon. I probably didn't get that done. All right, moving on to Steve's question. Steve asked... Um, there are drugs that you can be given uh, when you have a medical procedure that perhaps it would be good to not remember the procedure. So they give you this drug so that uh, you actually are conscious during the procedure, but you don't remember it afterwards. And the question he had about that was, is that memory, could that memory still be there? And suddenly, you know, it's a traumatic memory and it's something awful and it comes up later or it affects you in some way. Well, first, I'm just going to sigh um, because we're going to address, start unpacking a myth about memory here. But just to start off with Steve's specific question. So there are drugs that will interfere with quite deliberately um, what we call short-term memory. So uh, when you first have an experience, our first information comes in, you know, to your brain. Depending on what kind of stimulus we're talking about, you have maybe fractions of a second up to maybe 30 seconds or so for your cognitive system to take the next step, which is to do start doing things uh, that you can aid, but often just happen on off their own bet. So um, uh, to t- turn that memory into... Well, it's basically to take that and turn it into a more permanent memory. Okay. It's called consolidation. And so you're saying you have just a, a split second, you're saying, for it to become consolidated? It starts. It starts, starts. to become registered and, and starts to develop into a real memory. Okay. Uh, and so this isn't exactly right, but for the purposes of today, I'll just say, <laughs> imagine that you've got some kind of register where all these stimuli are coming at you think about it i mean just even right now there's all these stimuli coming at you and you're only paying attention to some of it so what you don't pay attention to is never getting what we might call encoded it's never even registering okay and then there is stuff that you're that's registering uh but that was three minutes ago and you don't need it anymore and so it's gone Okay. Right. It's not getting consolidated. It's so not it transferring. It wasn't encoded, or well, it doesn't transfer into this. Let's just say permanent storage. Yes. <laughs> well, it's not even permanent storage. It's a, you know a more durable form of memory. I think so, of it as RAM versus uh, disk drive. Well, I've, I've <laughs> often talked about it like that too, and you know, as long as we recognize that things are on a, a like a drive, disk drive mm-hmm. can be corrupted and get lost and get wiped. <laughs> that's that's okay. I can live with that sort of metaphor. Um, so you have uh, not all that much time before a memory just goes into, basically falls out of your head. Okay. Like I am when somebody tells me their name. Enough? Yeah. Just yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like that. Squirts right out. Yeah. Heard and it. So, gone. So it's this bridge between short-term memory and a longer-term store that is what these drugs target. Oh. So when I had... Um, 
an endoscopy, which is essentially like a stick with a camera on the end that you have to swallow. Mm-hmm. You have to be awake for that because you have to swallow it. But you most have people, to be able to move around. They have to be able to move you around. And yeah, stuff. and say keep swallowing, keep swallowing, keep swallowing, and and um, they have to have your cooperation because if you just passed out, you can't swallow it, and they're not okay. going to shove it down you. And so Break they have to have everything your cooperation. On the, way. on the other hand, astonishingly, uh, if I were just there, and they said oh, we're going to put this camera down your throat, okay. Uh, it's also going to be on the end of a big kind of stick thing. You know, I'm going to be like, the hell you are. <laughs> so they give you this drug. And so what happens is they start putting this thing in. I think I want to say that they go through your nose or some ridiculous thing, oh, as if it could be worse. So they give you a drug like scopolamine or something. And it, it basically interferes with short term memory. So what happens is there you are, sw- swallow, swallow, swallow. And you keep just not. Um, processing for any duration how long this procedure is taking or what just happened or you know anticipating what's happening you know so it's it's not like i i look at these people and i go who the hell are you but it's just it's just very weird and steve would have had experiences like that too so and it's it's to gain your cooperation so they can carry right. out the test so you're saying the drug is targeting before it gets cemented before it yes. gets encoded well, not encoded, but it's before it, it before it gets more durable. So okay. you have the presence of mind in those 20 or 30 seconds to be following their instructions, but not to be anticipating what's happening next and not to be having an accumulation of fear because you remember what happened two minutes ago. Oh, right. And okay. so, but the, you know, in my case, the funny part I thought was at the end of the procedure. Now, I, of course, only remember, I have like one sort of image in my head of this recovery room, mm-hmm. probably because I was in there before they gave me the drug and saw where I was going to go. And they were explaining everything to me. And after they brought me out, apparently, (laughs) apparently they said, um, well, you can have some juice and maybe like a donut. I don't know what they would give you. And the doctor will be out to see you shortly. Okay. So according to Devin, what happened in 30 second increments for the next 20 minutes or so was that I would, say i'd sit on the bed and then i would kind of slap my legs and go stand up and say okay well let's go we're done (laughs) and she'd say no you're supposed to have some juice and a donut and we're waiting for the doctor oh and i'd sit down and this happened just over repeatedly like a really bad saturday night live skit (laughs) and even the doctor gave me talk to me i I feel like i can see the doctor's office but i don't even know if that's real and gave me a prescription and gave me some information about how I could prop up my bed because I was getting indigestion. I could prop up the corner of my bed and do this and that. I have no memory of any of Why this. Why did they tell you that I don't stuff. know. I mean, it's I like, was wondering. There's I, no point. I think, well, you know, Devin would have remembered it, right? Sure. But, but when I was moving, I found that stuff. And if you had told me that aliens had broken into my house and put this stuff there, that would have been your reaction. I would have been like, well, that's more plausible because I was like, what is this? And I and Devin said, oh, that's that's from your endoscopy about how to didn't you what ever did fill that prescription? Oh, well, apparently not, because here it is from whatever, <laughs> yeah, 15 years you? ago or something. Yeah. But but so back to what Steve's question, you're saying. So, that- no, it's gone. The, this is a really long ass way of telling <laughs> Steve. The answer is no, because. Those drugs work by 
targeting that very bridging process between short-term memory and longer-term okay. storage. They're not suppressing it. They're making no, it never because exist, that in the bridge is not a matter of uh, you know repression or suppression. What's ha- what it's what it's doing is not taking it and going. I'm just going to take you and bury it into you know taking this memory and walling it off from your conscious awareness. We will be like, no, that never happened to me. What it's doing is it's actually screwing with, interrupting, interfering with the okay. complicated. There's a really like a protein synthesis that happens that that helps memories. It's called consolidation, right? So it's it's interfering with the consolidation process. Oh, so it's a, it's okay, actually a okay. physical targeting. Because I was thinking it would be really cool to take those drugs, say, after like an eight-hour ops review meeting or something like, like that. Yeah, nice. like, like after why a do faculty I need to remember meeting. that? Right. Yeah. Well, in fact... Um, but you have to do it in those 15 or 20 seconds? Or, or yeah, during. So, but, it, but it's not just then. There's actually a, a, what's called a consolidation window. So there's some really interesting work started at NYU um, on this consolidation window. So you can, you actually have about six hours, so the research suggests, to interfere with the consolidation of a memory. And there was some research on, uh, and some of this also was done at UC Irvine, Jim McGaw's lab. Um, Go anteaters. Sorry. Yeah, I know, I know. I know. I just can't see myself screaming that at a game. <laughs> that's really okay. They don't have sad. any sports teams. Yeah. That's well, no, true. they had volleyball, I think, yeah, something do. like that. I went to Irvine, too, as did Steve. Or something. So, anyway. what's interesting is that you can. Um, so, propanolol, which is a beta blocker, right? Can be used to interfere with this consolidation window. So, there's some. some I, there was some suggestion in the scientific literature some years ago that if you give people propanolol, you can not maybe not get rid of the mem- a memory entirely by screwing up with screwing with consolidation. Just like I know I was there and swallowed the camera on the stick, but and mm-hmm. I have sort of snippets of it. But you dampen down a lot of the emotion and feeling oh. associated with the memory. Were they looking at that for rape? Yeah, yeah, we might have yeah. talked about this before. So. There's the the 15 to 20 second window, but there's also a six hour window. Well, because consolidation goes on. Consolidation is complicated. So consolidation probably plays out over time. Okay. And um, in different ways. And if you can interrupt it at various points or interfere with it at various points, there's also some idea in the literature that uh, every time you recall an experience that you then have to, you know, in the process of, let's just say, conceptually putting it back where it belongs, now you have another round of consolidation. And in the course of that, you can sweep up. You don't put away just the memory. You put away the thoughts and the images and the feelings you had. So recalling it. Every time Tom opens Time Scroller, he remembers me when he puts it back. Yeah, and he adds (laughs) stuff to it. Like, wow, I've had a lot of love for Time Scroller. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) All right. Well, Steve will uh, will definitely be happy about that. Um, I'm not sure there is an answer to this question, but you've spent a lot of your, your work, um, discrediting the concept of repressed memories and, uh, and the, uh, the implantation of, of false memories is what you've done uh, to say, look, I can make you think things happen that actually didn't because you can put memories in. How does that prove that there aren't repressed memories or does it even do that? 
Well, I guess this gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning. You can't really prove a negative. But I can tell you that the whole, so the idea with repressed memories is this. You have an experience that's too upsetting for you to be remembering. And so what you do is you, I often describe it like this, you, because I'm from New Jersey. So you put it in the equivalent of some kind of mental toxic waste (laughs) drum and you shove it into some dark corner of your mind out of conscious awareness so that if I said, so if you had said to me, hey, did X ever happen to you? I would say, nope. And I would think that I was being truthful. Uh, But it's because I'm not psychologically unable to handle the information. Now, like most toxic waste, again, I know this from being in New Jersey, like most toxic waste, it still leaks into your uh, everyday behavior, but you don't, really know why so it's sort of like percolating into the soil like we see toxic waste do and now one day if i get to a point where i'm able to handle this information maybe i encounter some cue this is how retrieval works so all of a sudden that drum gets unearthed and opened and boom there's the memory and the point is that the memory itself has been protected from the decay that we now knows happen, we, you know, we now know happens with uh, what we've known for years, happens with other memories. So it happens with all kinds of memories. But for some reason, so goes the notion of repression. These memories, when they go in the toxic waste drum, don't decay. And when they come out, they're accurate. Now, this defies any kind of, not just logic, but it cuts against more than 100 years of scientific evidence about human memory. And some people say, oh, Maybe it's the case that memories that are, that are really important, importantly negative, you know, traumatic, whatever, are different. They are different. They're remembered typically with more emotion and detail, uh, but not necessarily. they're not necessarily more accurate, nor are they immune to the distortion and decay that characterize other memories, even other important memories. And we know that all of that from lots and lots of research, like where were you when the Challenger exploded or whatever, you know, where were you in 9-11 or where, you know, even military studies where you can inflict quite a lot of in the, uh, under the rubric of training people and wanting to learn who would be fit to be a Navy SEAL, for instance, you can put them through a lot of harrowing, you know, highly skilled people, lots of harrowing experiences. So there's just, but could I say after all that, even even saying it cuts across probably more than 100 years of what we know about the way memory works and doesn't work, can I say there's no such thing as repressed memory? And here I'll quote Beth Loftus, who says, could I say there's no such thing as a unicorn? No, mm-hmm. I've never seen one. I don't know anyone else who's ever seen one, but it doesn't mean I can't really say that they're not there. I can just say it's really, 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 really doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so therefore, it's really, really, really unlikely. So let's stop building entire you know, like, for instance, legal proceedings on the basis of, well, this might be a good way to, this might to be a good different. set of facts to take to a jury. Right. No. they aren't facts. Yeah, it's a bad set of facts to take to a jury. So um, that's the thing about repressed memories. But does that mean there aren't any real ones? Well, it's kind of like the unicorn of memory. Now, the reason that I and other people and people before me, like Beth Loftus and Ira Hyman and, and so on, the reason that we've all done this work where we try and implant false memories in people is to try and get at the, you know, this situation like, oh, well, you've suddenly remembered this thing. 
How else could you suddenly come to remember something, have this feeling that you would have said, no, that didn't happen and thought you were telling the truth and then still have this feeling of, my God, I must have buried that and recovered it in some way. And and that's why we all set out to to do this. What What is another plausible explanation for how you could have this to experience? That, okay. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I've talked about this before, so it's... It's pretty straightforward to do that kind of thing. <laughs> it really is. Surprisingly straightforward. It's surprisingly yeah. straightforward. So um, you talked a little bit about this, but how come adults can often recall traumatic childhood memories with such vivid detail? Well, uh, important experiences and significant experiences typically are recalled with a lot more detail than their mundane counterparts. Uh, so it's not that traumatic memories are special. It's that memories that are b- both important and emotionally intense are special in the sense that they are uh, recalled, often recalled with a lot more detail and emotion and vividness. But none of those memories are necessarily accurate. <laughs> because the traumatic ones we probably take out and and roll around and put back and 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 cause the decay that you talk about. Probably lots of them do. I mean, I think that your most if you match valence, what's called valence, so emotional tone, so probably our most positive, like on the opposite end of the scale. So if this is a nine out of ten for how positive something is, then the, what's the negative nine out of ten for how negative something is? You know, so. We would say those two memories are matched on emotional intensity, valence. Hmm. Uh, so you probably think about those a lot, except that you know there is some there is some evidence that people don't necessarily talk about. Sometimes people will talk about with others their most negative memories, and sometimes they won't. Right. Um, but what's also interesting is that people tend to say that they're most negative, particularly if they have trauma. Uh, they t- they might not talk about them with others necessarily, particularly if they're shameful. They feel ashamed about these right, kinds of right. experiences, but they intrude into their conscious awareness. So they, in that sense, they're, they're not, they're the opposite of repressed, right? They're just <laughs> always there interfering with their ability to concentrate and, and function. Um, that's one of the hallmarks of PTSD, for instance. So, it's just it's just the case that these kinds of memories, important ones, significant ones, regardless of necessarily whether they're traumatic, tend to be recalled in, with a lot of detail and, and emotional intensity, but not necessarily huge amount. Of, I mean, not necessarily they're not necessarily accurate. It sounds to me like it's almost like the opposite of what we said about memories about names being memorable. So a name is just a, this abstraction that really has nothing to do with you, but but. If you hit me over the head, that's got a whole lot of not abstraction, right? That's got a lot of very vivid things that are are happening and emotional reactions that you would I would expect to be attached to it. Um, well, I mean, some of it is a kind of overload of information. So there, there's a guy named David Rubin at Duke who wonders if part of why you remember traumatic memories in in kind of a if to the extent that you do this, it may be a bits and piecey way, you know, mm-hmm. just to coin an adjective, is because it's chaotic. 
So you don't know, there's some of these kinds of memories that you don't know what's happening next, but you can find positive memories that are like that. So I ask people sometimes, tell me about your wedding reception. And there's like a bit of structure, but a lot of it is just chaos. And they remember very little. Mm. And, you know, he's wondered if part of the reason that sometimes people say they, they feel like they're in the air looking down at themselves in a, in a, in a traumatic event is, is because in all this sort of chaos, you don't, you don't encode certain kinds of details. And oh, so you could find the same thing for, you know, a positive chaotic event. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can see that. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's very interesting. So there's, there's not many of these features that seem to be, or the outcomes or the patterns that seem to be unique to trauma. Okay. Except that okay. when people have, I mean, there is no PTSD because you've had too many good things in your life, right? There's, <laughs> there are there are trauma responses. Although PTSD, it's a it's a hodgepodge dog's breakfast, as we say in New Zealand, of a diagnosis, uh, and the idea that it's one underlying unifying thing seems to be less and less supported by the literature. And what seems to be more supported by the literature is some evidence that PTSD can be a disorder of driven by a memory distortion and maintained by a memory distortion. So you think something was worse than you said it was just after it happened. That's associated with more PTSD symptoms. If you think something is better, you know, wasn't as bad now in your memory as you said it was shortly after it happened, that's associated with fewer PTSD symptoms. Wow. Yeah. I bet that's a huge field to be studied. It's a huge field to be studying. Yeah. So um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about before we wind this up was um, you've got uh, a new grant. So you're, you're kind of branching into kind of a new direction. Uh, what can you tell us about that? What are you going to, what do you want to learn about next? Well, what we're trying to do is, is, and I'm doing this work with Rachel Zayon to the University of Otago and Rob Nash of uh, Aspen in the UK. He's a grand student of mine. Uh, and Melanie Takarangi at Flinders, who is a former student of mine. All of them are really, really smart and do amazing work, and I'm very excited to have, you know, be on this team. We're going to take a look at what happens when you repeatedly recall traumatic memories because there's a therapeutic technique that is often associated with better outcomes, better, better mental health outcomes that has you uh, keep you keep talking about this memory, and and we think it's maybe not the. We think maybe these better health outcomes aren't a result of the fact that you talk to a therapist, but the fact that you keep recalling the memory. And when you recall a memory, it starts to feel easier to recall over time, and that's what's driving this effect. Um, so the effect they're seeing that is, they're saying that if you've talked to a therapist, uh, you've as you've repeated this, it becomes less traumatic as you repeat it. No, it becomes more story-like and more coherent, and, and it just feels like it comes out easier and, you know. Okay, it comes it's out easy, easier. Yeah, it's okay. easier to recall. Easier recall. Okay. Yeah, because when we don't remember, I mean, you, you kind of hint at it too, right? So, like, people get distressed by not being able to recall certain kinds of memories right. or when they don't come to mind easily. People get distressed by bits and pieces that are missing in their memory. But they tend to, I think... um, they tend to get distressed more about why can't I, you know, that when it's a bad thing and I can't remember it, something's gone wrong. Oh. Right? Uh, whereas yeah. if it's maybe, a, I don't know, like I, 
do you think it's a bad thing if I, when I said your, you know, weddings can be chaotic, a wedding reception, and you just only have bits and pieces of it in your head, and you say, I can see that? Do you think something must be wrong with me because I can't remember that? You just think it was mayhem, right? But there's this idea that we should. But I wish I could remember it better. Yeah, you do. You do. But we, but you don't make those kind of inferences that I think you do if it were something really negative and you just think, I should be able to remember this because is it buried in there? Is it going to come back? We make all these attributions oh, okay. about traumatic memory that I think are unwarranted and probably ultimately unhelpful. So people are saying now that, that if you uh, tell the story over and over over again to the uh, therapist, that it, right. it helps the story come out more easily. What are you going to try to see if is also true? Well, that's what we think is the explanation. So the yes. idea would be that the prevailing wisdom is that there's these therapeutic techniques that basically involve you going to a therapist and talking about this experience. Mm-hmm. And that the more you do this therapeutic technique, the more that you talk about the event, the more you expose yourself to the event and you become desensitized to it. Okay. Right? We don't think it has anything to do with this desensitization. We think what happens is when you first try and talk about an event, it feels difficult to recall. And and that'll be true regardless of whether it's positive, negative, or important. Okay. okay. Kind of like the categories I said before. And if you keep talking about that event, what'll happen is it becomes less and less difficult, to easier and easier to recall. And it's that feeling of, oh, this is getting easier to recall that you don't consciously do this, but you you just associate that feeling of, oh, it's less difficult with, I feel better. We don't like when things are difficult to recall. Okay. We like when things are easier to recall. So as, it, as your memory starts to transition from being difficult to recall to easier to recall, you should feel better. It's got nothing to do with, well, I think it's got very little to do with this I'm exposing myself to the idea of this event and I'm learning to tolerate it. Hmm. I think you also told me uh, earlier that you're, uh, you'd be also looking at what if you just typed it into a computer over and over again? Yeah. So we're not even going to use a therapist. We're just going to see if we can get similar patterns of results by having someone write. Because this idea, this basically this prediction works like this. We don't need a therapist. I can get a similar pattern of results by just having people type into a text box repeatedly. Just like every once a day, tell the story? Yeah, yeah. Like to a a survey that comes to us or in an interview, right? But doing it repeatedly. You think it's the repetition and that that bringing it out brings out the details, makes it easier to recall. You become less distressed about it because you can recall it now, whether it's real or not, or the details are real or not. Yeah, and I think, I don't even know that it's, yeah, I don't think it's even the distress. I think it's that, because I think that you should find the same, like you'll use more words, you'll have more information. I guess I should have said at the beginning that when you when you have an experience of something is difficult to do cognitively, mm-hmm. we have learned over the course of our lives for various reasons and not, not worth getting into, we have learned to associate that with something is going wrong. Oh, Oh, I right? like real okay. Something is going wrong. Yeah. This is difficult. It feels effortful. It's like Something's when I'm trying wrong. to learn programming by stealth with Bart. Yes, exactly. It's really hard, so something's going wrong. Yeah. And so that's where you learn to interpret that signal as a as a signal of something is wrong. And I think we're especially designed to do that, especially evolved to do that for things that are negative. Huh. And that's cultural. That that bit is cultural. So if you can make things feel easier to recall then that feeling of something is wrong dissipates. And so one of the ways that you can get rid of that feeling or 
reduce that feeling of something is wrong is by making things easier to recall. Things become easier to recall the more you recall them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, oh, that'll be fun. That'll be interesting. I'm hoping it'll be interesting. Yeah. It sounds like it. Okay. So the very last thing you wanted to talk. Uh, well, why don't you introduce the last topic here? Well, the very last thing, and I'm, we're going to put this in the show notes. This is a piece that uh, I, I just had published with some students in my former university, Robbie Taylor and Cassandra Burton Wood. We wanted to, you know, we we're listening to Donald Trump banging on during the presidential campaign about make America great, make America great, make America great. Again. Yeah, again, 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 which, right, which suggests that there was a time when America was great. And so we wondered, what was that time? Now, I mean, the New York Times asked that question as well. And I think the Atlantic asked that question. And, um, but we set out to ask that question in a, you know, as in a controlled scientific way. Yeah. So what we thought was, I wonder if, you know, there's this, there's this phenomena in the literature called the reminiscence bump. I might have talked about this in one of my previous interviews. But when you ask people, what is the most important event that happened to you? So people, let's just say you and you're, what are you, 70, 80? Okay, <laughs> yes. Whatever. Yes. Right? What was the most important event that you can remember? What's your favorite song? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite this? You know, what book had the most impact on you? Who was the best president? What was the most significant historical event that occurred in your lifetime? Well, all those answers tend to converge on a period between when you were about 15 to 30. And that, so if we were to plot out people's answers and have their age at the bottom on the horizontal axis and the number mm-hmm. of people who gave that response on the vertical axis, then what you would see is this sort of bump in between this peak, this weird sort of bump in between the ages of, let's say, 14 to mid-30s, hmm. 15 to mid-30s. And that bump is called the reminiscence bump. And one of the ideas of why we have this, why we keep going back and drawing from that time, sampling from that time, oversampling from that time, in fact, than any other time in our life, is because there's a lot of cultural milestones that occur there. And we graduate use Graduate from to high school, graduate from college, get, get married, have exactly kids. Exactly right, exactly right. And so we use, we have to have some structure when we think, well, how am I going to think back in my life? You know, so we use this structure, which is a culturally driven structure, of course, to what happened then, what happened then, what happened then. I mean, it's sort of like what we were talking about at the beginning. So uh, now... Of course, that pattern suggests that the answer to when America was great is different depending on how old you are, (laughs) right? When you were born. So when you were 15 to 35, we thought that's when America was great. And it turns out that we can get two piles of sort of responses. So some people say things like America was great in 1776 or just after World War II or whatever it is when Obama won. I'm just going to take a deep breath and remember Obama. Okay. And then... But there's a whole bunch of people who will give an answer about America was great. And, and when was America great? When they were young. Hmm. So that's really interesting. that kind of pattern. And you can read about this. And when we, if you look at this Guardian piece by Matt Warren, uh, who quotes Dr. Gary? Yes. Um, so he. Oh, right. So what that suggests, that kind of pattern suggests is that Donald Trump could never win by making America great again because everyone has their own idea of what greatness looked like. But we all want that. 
Yeah. We all want course. that greatness of our Yeah, but of we're our all youth. heading we're all on a well, <laughs> we're all on a train heading to different decades. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? That's so, true. So this is there is no way to to use that idea to make America great again because we're all in our minds picturing Have a different, different idea of what so that would be. So we're all trying to get to a different location. Yeah, yeah. And that's all memory driven. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm going to uh, make my final snarky comment on that is uh, in that age range was when disco was big. So I don't actually think that was when the uh, America was great in my particular case in the 15 yeah, no, to I, I hear 25 you. year range. Yeah, neon and shoulder pads. <laughs> But still, <laughs> apparently there were some good things about it. Apparently. Well, Dr. Gary, it was wonderful having you on the show yet again. And uh, I certainly hope to have you back. Uh, anything, uh, if people want to follow you on social media, best place to go? Twitter, Dr. Lambchop. Dr. Lambchop. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal, or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at Podfeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.